to The Border, a World Inside Special on CGTN. I'm Tianwei. Almost two months have passed since Indian troops crossed the China-India boundary in the Sikkim sector. China considered the Indian action illegal and urged the Indian trespassers to immediately and completely withdraw. Although the Indian side has discussed diplomatic solutions, their soldiers still remain. So, who's right? Who's wrong? Why is the dispute happening now? If the latest bat not result, what is the danger? But then, what is the real solution? We have invited a very strong panel from both China and India, face-to-face, word-by-word, to articulate their views and make their voices heard. Right after this. Patients running thin. Border tensions between China and India are rapidly approaching a third month, the longest standoff since China and India went to war over their borders in 1962. Dozens of Indian forces and one Indian bulldozer are still inside Chinese territory. The Chinese Foreign Ministry reiterated Chinese sovereignty over the Doklam Plateau, stressing its unflinching position. New Delhi must withdraw all of its personnel behind the Indian border immediately and unconditionally. India cited so-called security concerns as well as protecting Bhutan's territory as a pretext to cross the China-India border in the Sikkim sector in June, a violation of long-time boundaries along the Donglong or Doklam Plateau. But the Bhutanese government has been silent on whether it sought Indian military help. Meanwhile, the Indian army has ordered the evacuation of a village close to the border. It is not immediately clear whether the evacuation is to accommodate soldiers or to protect citizens in case of a skirmish. As tensions rise, could the border situation spiral out of control? As tensions rise, could the border situation spiral out of control? all of its personnel behind the Indian border immediately reiterated Chinese sovereignty over the Doklam Plateau, stressing its unflinching position. New Delhi must withdraw all of its personnel behind the Indian border immediately and unconditionally. India cited so-called security concerns as well as protecting Bhutan's territory as a pretext to cross the China-India border in the Sikkim sector in June, a violation of long-time boundaries along the Donglong or Doklam Plateau. But the Bhutanese government has been silent on whether it sought Indian military help. Meanwhile, the Indian army has ordered the evacuation of a village close to the border. It is not immediately clear whether the evacuation is to accommodate soldiers or to protect citizens in case of a skirmish. As tensions rise, could the border situation spiral out of control? You're watching The Border, a special program on CGTN with World Insight. And join me, very strong panel, both from China and India. Very honored to introduce Senior Colonel Joe Ball, Director from the Center for Security Cooperation with the Office for International Military Cooperation with the Ministry of National Defense here in China. Welcome, sir. Also joining us, Mr. Hu Shisheng from China as well, Director of the Institute of South and Southeast Asian and Oceanian Studies at the China Institute of Contemporary International Relations. Welcome. Also joining us, 
two Indian guests, Professor Tansan Sen, who is the director of the Center for Global Asia, professor of history with the New York University in Shanghai. Also joining us, last but certainly not least, Mr. Atu Anija, who is a China correspondent of the Hindu. Welcome. Thank you. So gentlemen, let's jump directly into the discussion. Can you help us to understand what is the latest situation on the border? The latest situation is that right now there are about Chinese uh, soldiers standing eyeball to eyeball with more than 40 Indian soldiers uh, in the place called the Doklam, which China believes is Chinese territory, while India believes it is uh, a dispute area between China and Bhutan. So this is ironic in that for the first time in our history, that in spite of the uh, ons and offs of our relationship, in spite of the trespassing of the two troops, because the line of action control was not, is not demarcated, this is the first time that we end up standing eyeball to eyeball in, in a place where we would not have any tension or standoff at all. All right, is that an only to you, Professor Sam? Well, the situation is in dire straits, that, that's true. And whether or not it should happen is an issue that was perhaps created by China by building the road. When that is what started all these things off, it's not that the troops moved, but there was a construction happening in a disputed area, that, as you mentioned. Uh, and this is an area that Bhutan, India, and China, all three of these uh, countries are liable to talk about. So without getting consent from either Bhutan or India, I don't know if China should have started building a, constructing a road there. And China has done this before with the Pakistan-occupied Kashmir as well. No, I, no, no, I strongly disagree with you because, as, as I said before, this is what India believed to be a disputed area. China holds that this is absolutely Chinese territory. China, yes, is building the road, but that is an area which is, first of all, is Chinese territory, and secondly, is under China's effective control. Third point is, even talking about building road, India has been, never ceased to build a road on your side. Have you, we ever complained about your building road? No, we didn't say, say much. You build a road along line of action control. You build a road in, uh, in uh, Arunachal, which China believes is Chinese territory. So building road is not the issue. The issue is India now is in the territory of other countries. While you are not invited, while you trespass into Chinese territory, that is the core of central issue. All right, let's go to mm -hmm. Mr. Energy to respond to that yeah. as well. Yeah, and there are two competing narratives which are coming over here. And one is the Indian narrative and one is the Chinese. The Indian one says that there was an agreement in 2012 between the special representatives of the two countries where a decision was taken that in areas which are not clarified, which include the tri-junction area where the Indian narrative says the standoff is taking place, that the status quo should not be altered. And uh, from the Indian perspective, the status quo was altered when China started building the road in this area. And the Chinese position, as I understand, uh, takes its root from the 1890 treaty, uh, 1890 convention of uh, uh, Britain and the Qing dynasty of China. Uh, which uh, is supposed to have said that the alignment of the border will follow a certain watershed uh, principle. Now, I don't see any problem in accepting, uh, the Indian side accepting the watershed as a principle. 
The problem really arises in certain detail, in certain specific areas. I'm happy that we have this common principle of the watershed. Now comes certain specific trouble spots. And mm. that, as the 2012 uh, agreement said, the trijunction is one of those trouble spots. I think the real debate now is how do we clarify the trijunction? Several things, Mr. Hu. First uh, of all, the status quo. Uh, and secondly, <laughs> whether this area, as being mentioned by our Indian counterpart, is the issue that China is talking about. Uh, status quo, maybe we have different understandings to the Chinese uh, observation that uh, it is for the Indians already uh, break the status quo. Even Indians' uh, constructions, even transpassed the, the the bridges, even into the Chinese-controlled territories. As you mentioned, uh, uh, 2012, uh, we didn't call it uh, uh, agreement. Maybe it is a mutual understandings by the two special and representatives. What was the there is some uh, understanding on the tri-junction. But the, why we haven't specified the China junction? Because one of the basic reasons that China and Bhutan haven't demarcated finally the border, uh, so we haven't uh, clarified in the longitude or latitude that kind of specific. But in the 1890 treaty, it is written in black and white that the China junction is uh, is a uh, uh, snow crusty mountain called Chimumata. Uh, now in the Asian, it's called Kipmuchi. Right? The crest mountain is very clear. A mountain is a mountain, right? You cannot expand it into an, an area from a sport to an area that is uh, very, uh, it sounds to me very close. Okay, gentlemen, you've already brought our issue back to the year 1890. So I would like the professor of history, uh, Professor Sun, to talk from your perspective. How do you see that part of history? Well, that part of history helps to resolve some of the issues yeah, it's very interesting that the Chinese side has problems with all the colonial agreements that were signed between British and, and, and Tibet or, or, or the Qing dynasty, but this is the only one that they seem to accept. Uh, and, and it's problematic. All historical documents, maps are problematic. As a historian, I'll tell you that. Uh, and Hu Zhisheng said that the mountain, but mountain has number of sites. Which sites of the mountain? Which areas of mountain is not just one peak? It's a whole land, and that needs to be demarcated. So 1890 treaty is a starting point, and as Atul pointed out, we don't have a problem with the watershed. But actual going on the ground, none of the people who signed the treaty actually went and saw and said that these are the lands that belong to Qing China or to British India. So when it comes down to actual ground reality, those treaties don't serve any purpose. It has to be negotiated by the two nation states that emerged in the late 1940s. I got one word no. from you. Those treaties don't serve any purpose. Do no, those my, treaties my serve purpose? My argument is that if you regard it the, the mountain, not, not a peak, not a spot, then why, then, that, that if it should be like this, that it is like a circle, right? Like a, like a area, like a circle. The circle not only covering the parts of China, should also cover what Indian controlled and also Bhutan controlled. But to my knowledge, that India already building the strongholds, even tunnels, even in the, in the areas around the the, the Jimumata, uh, snow uh, snow crested peak. So that is unfair. If comparing to China, Chinese side, we haven't even built a road connected to the ridge of the mountain. Even when did the Indian build up happen? That that is it happened in 1980 From 1980s on. Even before nine because in the 1980s, Chinese uh, the geographer, which want to know the ground realities, they found that there are already 40 strongholds built around the snow-crusted mountain. That is in 1980, 
June. Okay. Mr. Anadja, why did you have to build? And why can't China build from the Chinese side? No. Uh, the point is that, you know, we have these broad formulations. Now, to come to specifics, we need we have the technology now to do it, and we move in that direction and sort it out. Okay. Rather than saying that this is ours and this is yours, this will, this is taking a position According without using the specifics. It seems originally the, the place has never been decided as to who it belongs to. No, I don't think so, because clearly the uh, uh, Bhutanese herdsmen actually uh, pay uh, tax uh, to China, to China, as early as the 1950s, and the she, she you have documents to yes, convey that. Yes, because these kind of uh, receipt as a kind of original document are still kept in the Tibetan Museum, which could be seen by, by everybody. And so, if they pay the taxes, what does that mean? That, that, that means we have sovereignty over it. Otherwise, how, how could we they, they pay taxes to us? No, they, by us you mean China. Yes. But uh, if you ask the local herdsmen, they would say they're not paying taxes to China. They're paying it to the local governor or local person whom they would not identify as a Chinese, but a Tibetan. But I think uh, that difference that you don't make, uh, those people in Bhutan do make. Yes, I, I clearly uh, agree with you that uh, when they paid, they paid it to the local government. Yes. So that is clear. But after 1949, uh, who is the local government in Tibet? That is Chinese. Well, it's not very clear. It doesn't happen. I mean, according to you, it's perhaps very clear who is the local government. China does not take control of entire Tibet until later. So but in '49, many of the territories which are now in the People's no, Republic of China. But you are also but, talking about 1959, right? Yes, We're not just no, talking about 1949. This is, this is a big difference of the historical views about the political right. entity of Tibetan. This is the contrasting differences. But there is a ground reality is that there was not only one country in the world accept even once the independence of Tibet. This is quite clear. What exactly is the fundamental issue in this dispute? Okay, we can go back in history. We can look at every document. But the fact is very clear. You have a People's Republic of China. The United Nations recognize the People's Republic of China, and Tibet is part of People's Republic of China. Let's put that aside, because sure. it's only making yeah. things too complicated all for all of us to work. Sure. Here's the thing, Senior Colonel Joe, what do you think, if we want to look for a solution, the fundamental issues we need to look at this? The fundamental issue is, India now has changed its tone. In the beginning, it claims that China has invaded the Indian territory, right? Your press, you keep changing your tones, and now, according to you, this is not Indian territory. So who allows you to come to this part of the world in which India should not be a party. Oh, whose territory is it? It's a disputed territory. It's it, nobody's territory. Disputed ter territory among whom? Between Bhutan, China, and India. Okay. And so it's, it, that was a 2012 important issue, and this is where India concessions. Uh, at most, it is uh, some misunderstandings on the of the territory between China and Bhutan. I have the Indian is not no part of I haven't heard even from Indian government that this is an issue between China, India, and Bhutan. That's that's what was covered yeah. in 2012. There are two things. One is the trijunction identification. We don't have a clarity. The second thing is why did India go in? Your question. Well, there is a, a dispute between Bhutan and China. Professor Hu, I have spoken to him earlier, he says 
that that's between us then it's between Bhutan and China. He said the worst thing would be that, but the most is okay. Let's just hear what you exactly said. You kind of put your words no, together no. to help us understand what exactly you said. No, the, of course, the, the Duma Airways uh, is under Chinese effective control for so many years. If there is some misunderstanding, that is at most misunderstanding between China and Bhutan, while India is not one party. Okay, so your question is, is why yeah. is India involved in a dispute, if there no, were any dispute the, the between fact, China and Bhutan? The, the, logic the logic here is that India want to seek absolute security by violating the Asian treaties which respected by both governments, India and China, ever since they established formal diplomatic relations. Okay. That's, this is a, a ground reality, right? Okay. Oh, please. Mm. No. Why is India there? No. Two issues. One, that there is a dispute between Bhutan and China. There is no ambiguity here. There is a letter that the March, which came uh, from the Bhutanese side to China when the Doklam incident started, wanting the Chinese troops to move away and not, not build the road. The second thing is a public statement by the Bhutanese ambassador in New Delhi, where he's clearly saying that Doklam has been disputed territory between India and uh, between between China and Bhutan. So there is no question about that. Now it comes to the second second aspect. If it's a dispute between these two countries, that is China and Bhutan, what is India doing there? Right? Now I, I, I won't respond to that specifically. India has a has a defense treaty with Bhutan. That if if you there, there is a treaty which was signed first in 1949, which has been replaced by another treaty in 2007, which is a security treaty, that if there is any threat coming into that, the treaty kicks in. And on the basis of that legality, Indian troops go into, into this territory which Bhutan claims and so on. Senior Colonel Joe, you obviously do not agree with our Indian counterpart. What exactly are you trying to say? First of all, yes. The Bhutanese government uh, declared a Dimash, which I have all reasons to doubt, that is uh, made under India's pressure. Because is Buddha under Indian pressure? All the South Asian small neighbors are under Indian pressure. And that is why you live in no amity with any of your neighbors. Uh, let's let's just uh, raise an example. Let's raise an example. Yeah. yeah, you should be a good neighbor to Sri Lanka, right? But when your Prime Minister Modi visited Sri Lanka the year before last, that was described by your newspaper at the first time in 28 years. This Your two countries is just separated by a small strait. Now let's talk about the treaty, that, uh, the 1949 treaty and the 2007 treaty. Yes, I read the treaty. So in the 1949 treaty, the treaty between Bhutan and India, and India, yeah, it says that the Bhutan agree to be guided by India in external relationship, right? So that's exactly what it was described. So how can any sovereign states would agree to be guided by a country on external relationship if it agrees? That means there is a kind of request. Otherwise, how can one agree to something? Then this kind of treaty would not hold water. That is why you have to change it in 2007, when now we have entered the modern area, uh, where the, such kind of uh, monopoly would not uh, work anymore. And in this treaty, you actually mislead it, because you say that in, in, in 
in the response to threat. So therefore, you actually act together. Mm. But even in this uh, uh, treaty, black and white, it just asks you to have a close coordination of issues of uh, mutual national interest. Remember, this is a yeah. Security. No, no security. Yeah, but he did, did not specify that to be trespassing into the territory of other country. So you, that's so I tell you, assumption. you actually made another announcement that one day after Bhutan's announcement, right? The next day you made a, you made a, uh, made a declaration. So I have a reason to assume why could you make a declaration so quickly because you're well prepared, because you know what the Bhutanese government would say. So therefore you have already prepared something. And in this uh, declaration, you have written it with all ambiguity. For example, you do not call these people to be soldiers. You just say you're sending personnel. You just say you have a, a coordination because, but you dare not say one thing clearly that you are not invited. So you try to will your declaration with uh, ambiguity. That All is right, the uh, several things. Okay, what is the nature of this relationship between India and Bhutan? Senior Colonel Joe has a lot of doubts about. That's first. Secondly, does this treaty allow India to do the things that it is doing right now on behalf of Bhutan? Let's just put aside whether there is any dispute or not between China and Bhutan about this region. So I'll let the two gentlemen respond, any of you. First of all, I would say that there's a lot of speculation and assumption that comes from uh, uh, the senior professor himself, but I think it's all, all his view uh, mm -hmm. and it's not ground reality. I think that's, that's the problem. What is the ground reality? And Atul was right that uh, I think the treaty between Bhutan and, and India makes it clear that India should be present when Bhutan's security is threatened and India feels no, that has it's been... not written like that. Uh, Clearly, if you read it, it's definitely not written that okay. India should be there. Give me a one sentence which said India should be there when there is such a kind of a national security issue. All right, go ahead. Can I, can I add to this? You are misinterpreting no, the no, treaties. Treaties are conceptual. Treaties are not going into details that this battalion is going to be deployed if there is going to be. It doesn't get into the specifics. That's why you it make goes, that's goes why into, you make use of it. It goes up a concept. I can tell you another example. Indo-Soviet treaty with which the Bangladesh war took place. It was a peace and security treaty, but never was it that the Soviet Union forces are going to come in case there is going to be a clash between India and Pakistan. It doesn't mention but, the, but the no, I I just have to complete this clear. Treaties are made on concepts. And interpretation of the concept is part of an internal communication which takes place between the treaty signing countries. I am not aware that Bhutan did not approach India to invoke the treaty. We don't know that. And what the senior colonel is saying is an assumption that they did not and that we just moved in well prepared. I think if you already have a preconceived construct, okay. then you will try and fit everything into your narrative. Is it a right. is it a that's, that's the reason why we need now to actually go and talk with each other of each of the apprehensions. Okay. Because I think there's another very, very major point, which is we don't have a good constructive dialogue, a framework for a dialogue. Where we Let's talk about the dialogue that that later. Let's just get the facts clear here. That's okay, one of the facts, very important, that is, if you have a treaty, that is whether Bhutanese side have asked Indian side to be at the place where you are today. And according to the description, it is the Indian soldiers that are there. So, Mr. Hu, do you think and have you heard anything from the Bhutanese side? Read from the public information as well. 
coming from the Bhutanese government public statement also that indicating Bhutan is asking India to be where the Indian soldiers are, in which there is a dispute between China and India. At least from the issue of the statement of the foreign minister of Bhutan, there's no mention about inviting it, there's no mention of coordination or cooperation. Uh, and also another event is that when the uh, Indian newspaper reporter Correspondent asking the Bhutan ambassador in New Delhi that how do we comment on the Chinese diplomat in New Delhi saying that you are not invited, you are even didn't uh, Bhutan didn't know your your intention in sending the the, the border troops into Zonglang area. Then the what did the uh, Bhutan Bhutanese ambassador respond that no comment, no more nothing to be added to that. Because everything is so clear in the statement the of the June the, June the 29th. But June the 29th didn't so, mention this. So are are you saying the statement is the root of the whole issue? The statement only came out after the dispute happened. So, so many, uh, yeah, so, after so many days. So what I'm asking you very clearly, Mr. Hu, is mm. do you know anything in public or through, let's just say, discussion with your Indian colleagues that the Bhutanese side have asked the Indian side officially to be there in the place where there is a dispute. No. No. Okay, let's go to the side. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, so that's the issue. I mean, uh, the senior colonel is assuming that nothing has happened. You know, something has yeah, happened. I mean, no what comment, is the thing you're referring to? It, the, the treaty kicked into its place. I mean, as it should So happen. there's the Indian interpretation of the treaty no, which it's, kicked it's the place. Indian and Bhutanese interpretation of the treaty, which which China sees differently. It's not a question of interpretation. You know, it's a question of internal communication which follows. I, I fail to understand. Internal communication. Do you know there are internal communication? What kind of internal communication? No. Through whom? With whom? No, that is precisely the point. When something like this has to happen, it is based on internal and confidential communication. I don't have an idea whether the facts went or the telephone went yeah. or anybody, but yeah. neither I can challenge any of my Chinese colleagues knows that either. Okay. This is going to be something which is going to be declassified at a very later stage. We will not know. We don't know. So, okay. All right. Mr. NHI is suggesting there might be some secretive channels. Normal government channels. Normal government channels. And yet the, those channels are not making to the public what they communicated with one another, even on the issue of the border. When even when the border issue has become such a controversy in this world, this time, there is no public statement. Uh, Senior Colonel Joe, how do you reflect on that? Well, I think that is a perfect excuse. No, imperfect excuse used by India whenever it comes <laughs> to such a kind of a coordination. Well, let me example, which you cannot deny. When Nepal and when Bhutan have some problems with you, what did you do to them? Sanction of gas, diesel, this is known to everybody. So all these small neighbors. What did they do? Tell us. Well, we don't we, know. We, 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 we uh, please let him finish. They, please let him finish. Yeah. They have sanctions on on Nepal. Yeah, the, uh, not more than more than one time. So whenever these small countries, yeah, have some something different, so India would behave like a big brother, which uses its. Uh, so is this, is it really different from China and no. Japan, China and, and Vietnam? That's, that's not I, mean, I, I think we are getting away from the actual issue and bringing in issues that are not. What relevant. is the actual issue? The issue is how to solve this problem. No, the issue is yeah. let's get the facts clear first facts, before we try to solve facts the problem. Facts are not clear because we have to go to the ground to make the, the facts issue. clear. There is, there, is yeah, one issue, there is one issue very important. That is 
who will have a say in this? Who will have a really? Who will have a say? Let's hear from different sides. Who will have a say? Is it China should have a say in the final solution? Is it India that should have a say in the final solution, or is it Bhutan, which has been absent from this discussion because their soldiers are not there in this discussion about the solution? Who should have a say? Well, all three should. I mean, that that was the framework that I think India had talked about in 2012. That they, this is an issue that involves Bhutan, India, and China, and all three sides should sit down together. And I think a multilateral negotiation is needed here. Bhutan and China have talked for 24 rounds. India and China have talked for 20 plus rounds. Nothing gets solved. But this is a place where three different states can talk with each other, and this is the mechanism that needs to be employed in other parts of the India-China border. Okay, well. here, Professor Sun, if I understood right, the Chinese stance, the Chinese were appalled by the fact that one thing that has never been disputed through various administrations of India. Over the past few decades, now becomes such a controversy, and India is all of a sudden asking all sides to discuss. No, okay, discuss true. what? No, that's About not true. What and where should the discussion come from? Exactly. I mean, you know no, that I, 1890 I, uh, convention did not really mark the lines of actual control, as as we pointed out in the beginning of the show, that the actual reality is not clear. And and this area has been in dispute between China and Bhutan. No, two two points. I still couldn't figure out the reason why we noticed what we are going to do twice. There is no formal re uh, response. Then suddenly you use such kind of radical way to stop. So what is the reason behind it? You just want to create the standoff. Uh, this is uh, uh, very important. When you say we, meaning I guess China, China notices the relevant parties. What was the notice about? The notice is that we're going to building a, a normal patrolling road mm -hmm. because we even haven't having a road. And when did China do that? The, uh, 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 that is in why is in May the 18th. The another second is in June. And the what 8th. was the response? No response from your so, side. So from the Bhutanese side. No, 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 no. no. Let me kind of try to clarify. All right. Say. Here's the, another crucial issue. I'll come the up the here. spokesman of your Ministry of External Affairs said he would neither acknowledge nor deny that they have received Chinese notification. This is to me very strange because either you receive it or you haven't received it. How can you say I won't acknowledge it or deny it? There are only two, two choices, right? According to you, it says whether you receive it yep. or you did not receive it. And from China, from China, a note definitely can be received okay. from China. All right. How can you not receive it? First of all, they're not their ministry official. Of course, they wouldn't speak for their ministry. But that is confusing, to say the least, Mr. Anija. Well, I find this interesting that there was these two letters, one in March, as Professor Hu said, and the other in May. Uh, Letters sent to India, stating China's intention to build the road. As I understand, now, if you go by the 2012 agreement, this road is being built in the tri-junction area. How how can you give a post facto that you are going to build it? If you have the intention of building the road, you have to consult the three countries that we intend to do. Is everybody agreeable? Here is an announcement saying that we are doing it. There is no pre-discussion. That is what is required under the 2012 agreement. Okay, and, 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 and therefore, 
uh, I find it very, very strange that this is information being conveyed without even a discussion. And, and may I add and, also and that, 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 that is why send a letter to India if they think India is not concerned? And second, second point I would just yeah. want to add, if this is not any disputed area, there is no question of a letter. Yes. Now, now let me say, let me compare this. Suppose you're building a road from Lhasa to Yadung. It is undisputed. You're going to build a railway over there. India may have security apprehensions, but nobody can object to it. Mm. And there is no question of any letter going to India that we intend to build a road. So why the very fact that you're sending a letter yes. means there's a history behind the particular area. And that's very clear. No, and no, and no. that that's itself an indication that this is probably the disputed area. Yeah, and but, but you still haven't answered the question which is raised by Senior Colonel Joe. Let's just answer that question first. Yes, Why is your ministry people, which ministry is that? Mutual Foreign Affairs. Mutual Foreign Affairs, okay. Uh, is saying something, either denying or admitting that they have received any notice because from he, the Chinese was asked side. By your people about this I know you are not from it, but the attitude, itself, the attitude itself is interesting, isn't it? I if see. things need to be figured out, why facts are not being stated. Has China released that letter or letters? Uh, would you like to yeah, has, China, has China released those letters that were sent to, to India? Well, certainly, you know, uh, I also read this. Uh, no, have they released a letter or not? Or letters? Have the Chinese made public the letters that were sent to the Indian government? Uh, no, no, I don't think so. So how do you know what's in there? Maybe there's something. No, because because your spokesman answers it publicly. But, but as long as you don't know what's in the letter, it does not make sense for any country to say that we have received the letter and, and maybe it's well, a yeah, it's no, 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 no. It, well, it is it's a matter of fact. It's uh, rather, okay, right. It's the response okay. from your spokesman to your own people. This is what your spokesman said. So they may have reasons, so. What might be the reasons? That would be interesting. You're not representing the government of India. You're not representing, but we are here to analyzing it. We are not witness to history back in the year 1890, but we are talking about it too. But Mr. Hu, let me get you also to talk about that. Who should have a say here? One thing is that uh, when 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 you uh, when you said that uh, security is becoming a concern, is the whole security? I still wondering. You do uh, does Putin really feel his security be threatened? Uh, I'm still wondering. Then um, to the to the ground reality is that China even didn't build a road to the ridge, according to the 1890 treaty. While the Indians strongholds or the military frontier tunnels, even I just said that, transpass the ridges. So you have already created a symmetrical advantage toward uh, Chinese, uh, Chinese side. So in a disputed area. In the, but, but again, in this the is something that, that has never been brought up in either the negotiation between India and China or Bhutan and China. That this is, is because China something, saw this is something, we both respect the treaty. That is now you, you create no, no, but the, the fact that India has built something is, is your saying. In Chinese government has not said that in 1980s, have they? No, that is why China so, said that, oh, we already respect it. So uh, China didn't blame it. Okay, this if within within uh, if you are according to the 1890 treaty, it is your right. So now China Chinese government it is also Chinese right. So building to catch up with India side. That is, I think. Okay, here's the issue. Very Why reasonable. we are building the road is but not a, something out of creating, but, 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 but this, Chinese side, it is. From your, so, from that side. The no, nature right? of, of, of the whole thing is that India 
using the so-called security concern to challenge the sovereignty of another country. Oh, so if in the, uh, in, in the Kashmir issue, if China step in claiming that because one by one road will go there and the India is interfering, therefore we should support Pakistan. Should we do that? Have we ever ever tried to no, do that? We started building a road in Pakistan occupied Kashmir. No, building a road doesn't mean we su we support each other's uh, uh, it's We're not changing the claim. We make it very clear. The road just passes, not affecting each other's sovereignty claim claim of no. the disputed right. area. You're watching the border, a world inside special coming to you from CGTN. We'll be back after this. Welcome back. You're watching The Border, a special program of World Insight on CGTN. I'm joined here by a strong panel made of both Indians and the Chinese. First of all, Professor Tan Sen Sen coming from India, Mr. Atu Aneja from India as well. From the Chinese side, Senior Colonel Zhou Bo and Mr. Hu Shishang. All right. Breathe, gentlemen. We just had a great debate, but now let's go to the most important part. We have to solve this issue. We cannot let the dispute go on. So let's just ask this question. What is the best scenario? What is the worst scenario if we don't have it resolved, Professor San? The best scenario is that we come to a negotiation and the troops there withdraw to their own sides. Um, the worst is, of course, uh, some kind of a battle. Uh, armed conflict, which we don't hope will happen. But uh, I think India and China have created a mechanism to talk, which is a major accomplishment in the past few decades, that uh, our officials and the Chinese officials have almost always come and, and talked to each other and, and negotiated some sort of settlements. Many of such things have happened in the past, and not even a single bullet has been fired. So I think that is a good mechanism to follow. So my hope is that something similar will happen. There are many things happening uh, politically in China and in India. But I think uh, the officials, the bureaucrats have a system to talk to each other and resolve this. Mm. So for me, the best scenario is nothing bad is going to happen. Nothing bad is going to happen, but with principles, right? Yeah, I think uh, they have a, a channel to negotiate with each other, talk to each other. Mm. I think they will come to an understanding on this as well. Mr. Hu, at this point, is it the time to talk when China has what they call the sovereignty issue about this. The most difficult, the two, two governments facing is that uh, the two sides' observation or views on this issue totally different, mm. totally opposite, which seems to me that make the both governments have uh, very little room to budge. So that is make the situation more complicated. According to Chinese uh, uh, government uh, official position that the mistake is created by Indian side. So Indian first to correct the mistake, then we have all the various channels, then we can, we can engage with each other. According to you, Senior Colonel Zhou, I have to ask that question as well, because you're coming from the Chinese military. So your worst scenario and your best scenario. The worst scenario is a war, which... Uh, can China and uh, India afford that? Well, that's a good question for Indians to think about. When uh, <laughs> when Professor Tansen talked about the uh, this conflict building measures you've made in the past, I'm fully aware of this. Actually, I have written an article telling people in China Daily how the good lesson from the China Sino-Indian border could be uh, applicable to uh, China's Diaoyi uh, and the issue with uh, 
India and the way the South China Sea is built uh, between China and some claimants of the ASEAN countries. But this time, the scenario is different because it's not about the China Indian border. It's about India trespassing into Chinese territory. This is what Chinese believe. So the whole background is different in China, China in Chinese government and in PLA have made that India must withdraw its troops unconditionally. Before that, no talks will be held. And there is one advantage of Chinese soldiers, that is the psychological effect on Chinese soldiers because they believe they are standing firm on Chinese soil, while your Indian soldiers can never be assured that you are standing on Indian soil. Okay. And that is the fundamental difference. Can Here. India do that? Why not doing that? These two strong governments on either side. You have the, the Chinese led by a strong president, and you have a Prime Minister Modi who, and both sides, the nationalist, nationalistic feelings have risen to a very great, great height with this issue. I do not think that there will be any unilateral withdrawal from the Indian side. They will look at all the consequences, and I can assure you that there will be no unilateral withdrawal. All right. The question is, then what next? The war is terrible. It's not good for uh, either China or India. But how can we avoid that? We already got that in 1962, which is uh, such a big thing for Indians psychologically. I know that. And to prevent the war, another war, from happening, the solution is really very easy for you. I know all what you are thinking now is how to save face. I know this. But remember, the Greek historian Thucydides said, what actually is the trigger of the war? Three things, honor, fear, interest. For you, you probably would say that you go there because of your interest, because Bhutan is interest. But for China, the top priority is honor. So compared to losing in a war, it's more affordable for you to lose face for the Indian government this time. All right. I guess we're already reaching the last stage of our discussion. Uh, I know all of you have more ammunition toward one another in such a debate format, but I'm so glad that all of you come together. Before we go, I do want to have one summary of your opinions, whether it's about history, whether it's about the future. Let's begin with you, Professor Sun. Yeah, I think we should forget what happened before 1940s and talk about China, India as two nation states dealing with a very actual problem. And I think they should come to a conclusion of solving this problem. All right, Mr. Hu. Let's be honest and respect history and the grown realities. All right, Mr. Anadja. We need to resolve and war is not an option. But at the same time, I do wish to say that nobody, there is an assumption of China being on a moral higher ground on this issue. I don't think any Indian believes that. All right, Senior Colonel As I have written in Nautical, India and on this matter is at a disadvantage, uh, morally speaking, because of the two facts. Number one, you're not invited. Number two, you step in the territory of other countries. So you have no moral ground, as you have said. Again, I would repeat that. It is a sincere wish that our two peoples and two countries could live in amity, but the ball is your call as to what eventually might happen. 
Thank All you. right. And with that, we're coming to the end of this special program, The Border, a special program of World Insight on CGTN. May I say, as the host of this debate, it is my great pleasure to have the four of you to come together and discuss. Thank you so much, Professor Tansen Sen, Mr. Atu Aneja, Mr. Hu Shisheng, Senior Colonel Zhou Bo. You've been watching our special program, and that is up for today. If you'd like to see more, try to find us, World Insight CGTN in your since the onset of the Deng Xiaoping era 30 years ago, no single issue has signified China's drive to restore its damaged national pride more than the quest to reunify the two lost Chinese territories of Taiwan and Hong Kong. For more than 150 years, Hong Kong was a symbol of imperialist aggression against China. Seized by Great Britain at gunpoint after the Opium Wars, Hong Kong remained a British colonial enclave until 1997, when sovereignty finally reverted peacefully to China. In anticipation of this historic handover, a large countdown clock was erected in Beijing's Tiananmen Square, ticking off the minutes until midnight, July 1st, 1997. On that night, as 12 o'clock approached, tens of thousands of people in the square began counting down the seconds. And when the clock struck midnight, there was wild jubilation in Tiananmen. Meanwhile, in Hong Kong, when midnight struck, a government fireworks show lit up the famous waterfront harbor. And Chinese President Jiang Zemin was on hand to give a patriotic speak, welcoming Hong Kong back to the bosom of the mother. But outside, on the street, things were considerably more restrained. After 155 years of British sovereignty came to a close, no one was quite sure what to expect. Would the PLA come marching into Hong Kong? Would pro-democracy activists be arrested? In anticipation of possible incidents, several thousand international journalists joined crowds of local citizens and assorted others in a post-midnight vigil in front of the Legislative Council building in Hong Kong's Central District, which was the center of Hong Kong's politics. I was among the throng of humanity that night. I had brought a group of a dozen or more of my UCLA students to Hong Kong in the spring of 1997 to observe the transition, to record it, and to write about it. My students and I waited almost three hours on the night of the handover for something to happen. But nothing did. No jackbooted PLA troops, no political disturbances, and no arrests. Gradually, the crowds dispersed as people moved on to Hong Kong's myriad watering holes and all-night parties. The handover itself was thus unexpectedly calm, orderly, and uneventful. To mark Hong Kong's retrocession, the next day, July 1st, was declared a national holiday. In Hong Kong, the shopping malls opened early that day, and a new one-day record for retail sales was set. 
thus providing further proof, if such were needed, to support the old adage that when the going gets tough, the tough go shopping. The handover impacted not just Hong Kong Island, which was the original British crown colony dating from the 1842 Treaty of Nanjing, but also two adjacent parcels of land across the harbor on the mainland, the Kowloon Peninsula and the New Territories. As we saw in an early lecture, Kowloon had been ceded outright to Britain after the Second Opium War in 1860, while the New Territories were leased to England in 1898 for a period of 99 years. Today's Hong Kong includes all three of these contiguous territories. The 1997 return of Hong Kong from British sovereignty to a special administrative region of China took place after lengthy and often acrimonious negotiations between Beijing and London. Because most of Hong Kong's territory and population, as well as its major industrial and agricultural resources, lay in the new territories, the approach of the lease's expiration date, June 30th, 1997, was a source of growing concern to the British government. As the expiration date drew nearer, the government of Britain's then Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher, sought to secure a Chinese commitment to renew the lease for another 50 years. But by 1982, it was clear that Deng Xiaoping was firmly opposed to such an extension. This put the British government in a quandary, for without the resources and population of the new territories, both agriculture and industrial, the rest of Hong Kong could not be sustained as a viable self-sufficient entity. It would exist at Beijing's pleasure a permanent hostage to Chinese political, economic, and military whims and pressures. Under these circumstances, Prime Minister Thatcher decided to negotiate a package deal for the return of Hong Kong to China. Under the terms of the British proposal, all three territorial parcels would revert to Chinese sovereignty in 1997. But in exchange, China would allow Hong Kong to exercise a high degree of local autonomy after 1997 and would pledge not to interfere with Hong Kong's existing economic, administrative, and legal institutions for a period of 50 years at least. These twin principles, local autonomy and a 50-year non-intervention pledge, became the cornerstones of the Sino-British Joint Declaration on Hong Kong which was signed in 1984. Soon afterwards, a Sino-British drafting committee began working on a new mini-constitution for post-1997 Hong Kong. Known as the Basic Law, that document was completed in 1990. Its various provisions spelled out in some detail Hong Kong's political, legal, and administrative arrangements for the next 50 years. Under a general framework known as One Country, Two Systems, the Basic Law granted Hong Kong substantial autonomy over its domestic affairs and its international commercial relations, while reserving to Beijing sovereign authority over diplomatic and military affairs. Politically, the Basic Law defined a Hong Kong government that featured a strong non-elected chief executive and a weak, partially elected legislature. 
Although the drafters stipulated that universal suffrage would eventually be introduced in the elections of both the chief executive and the legislature, no dates were specified in the document. And up to now, this has remained an unfilled promise. On the other hand, since the 1997 handover, Beijing has scrupulously adhered to its principal obligations under the Joint Declaration and the Basic Law. China's leaders have made no attempt unilaterally to change Hong Kong's economic, political, legal, or administrative institutions. And the basic legal rights, political and civil liberties of Hong Kong citizens have been retained more or less intact. Media freedom also remains relatively high in Hong Kong, although a certain amount of pressure has been exerted on radio, television, and newspaper editors and programmers in Hong Kong to refrain from excessive criticism of the Chinese government. Still, for the most part, media censorship has been more self-imposed than externally coerced. In general, then, the principle of one country, two systems, has worked out rather well in the Hong Kong Special Administrative Region, or SAR. Despite early fears that the, Hong, that the handover would spell the death of Hong Kong, in most respects, it has been largely business as usual since 1997. The same cannot be said, however, for Taiwan. There, a sizable majority of citizens continue to oppose the island's reunification with mainland China under almost any circumstances. To entice the Taiwanese people into accepting the idea of reunification, in 1981, the Chinese government announced a liberal nine-point blueprint for Taiwan's peaceful return to China. A year later, Deng Xiaoping incorporated this blueprint into his famous proposal for one country, two systems. Under the terms of Deng's proposal, Taiwan would be given even more liberal terms than those offered to Hong Kong. In addition to a high degree of autonomy and a promise of non-intervention in local affairs, Taiwan would also be permitted to retain its own military forces and, and could continue to maintain economic and cultural ties with foreign countries. Moreover, China's pledge of non-intervention would be permanent with no 50-year time limit on PRC self-restraint. But despite their many similarities, the cases of Taiwan and Hong Kong were nonetheless very different. Most important, the new territories, by law, internationally recognized, indisputably belonged to China, which meant that Beijing was legally entitled to reclaim it when the lease expired. By contrast, Taiwan's long separation from mainland China was a de facto situation that was based not on a binding international legal obligation, but on the vicissitudes of a bitter and protracted civil war, which had never ended, at least in formal legal terms. Indeed, the very bitterness of the Civil War ensured that many, if not most, Taiwanese would reject the idea that their fate should be dictated by the communist regime across the water. Hence, Deng Xiaoping's one country, two systems formulation never gained much popular traction in Taiwan. 
the height of the Cold War, from the mid-1950s to the early 1970s, Taiwan received major U.S. development assistance, partly because of the Cold War. As a result, the island experienced a substantial economic miracle. Politically, however, Chiang Kai-shek continued to rule Taiwan with an iron fist, permitting no opposition to the political monopoly enjoyed by the Kuomintang. When Jiang died in 1975 at the age of 88, the presidency passed to his son, Jiang Jingwu. And thereafter, Taiwan gradually, slowly began to open up its political system. In 1987, the Republic of China began transitioning to democracy. By then, the island's demographic composition had shifted substantially. The mainland-born Guomindang elites who had monopolized political and military power in 1949 and beyond were dying off, and new generations of native-born Taiwanese were rising to middle-class economic status. As they did so, they began to demand access to the instruments of political participation and ultimately power. By 1988, a new opposition political party, the Democratic Progressive Party, or DPP, began to challenge the Kuomintang's long-established political monopoly. And it also began to challenge the Kuomintang's traditional insistence that the Republic of China was the sole legal government of all of China, one China. The DPP served as a magnet for those who had been alienated by the rigid dictatorial policies of the GMD. The party also became a strong advocate for a separate and distinct Taiwanese ethnic and political identity. By the early 1990s, DPP candidates had gained a substantial number of seats in Taiwan's legislature. The more successful the party became, the more its leaders openly agitated for Taiwan's independence. This put the Kuomintang in a bit of a bind. They could not continue to win elections without somehow appealing to substantial numbers of ethnic Taiwanese voters. One way to do this was to recruit a few Taiwanese politicians into the Kuomintang's leadership ranks in hopes that they would attract native Taiwan followers. Thus it was that a native-born Taiwanese by the name of Li Denghui was selected as President Jiang Jingguo's Kuomintang running mate in the 1984 presidential election. When Jiang Jingguo died four years later, Li Denghui became Taiwan's first native-born president. This proved to be an important turning point in, in Taiwan's politics. For almost as soon as Li assumed the presidency, he began to reveal a strong underlying attachment to the cause of Taiwanese independence. Li Denghui's increasingly vocal advocacy of the separatist cause soon precipitated a rebellion by the Kuomintang conservative mainland faction, which split off in 1996 to form a new pro-reunification party. Now politics in Taiwan became increasingly polarized, into pro- and anti-independence camps.
But even as pro-independent sentiment was growing in the early 1990s, economic forces were beginning to draw the two sides of the Taiwan Strait closer together. Under Deng Xiaoping's open policy, indirect cross-strait commerce increased dramatically, dramatically in the 1990s as new opportunities were created for Taiwanese industrialists and investors to operate on the Chinese mainland. Particularly after Deng's 1992 southern tour, South China's Fujian province and its Zhuhai special economic zone became focal points for a dramatic expansion of Taiwanese commercial activity. By the mid-2000s, up to one million Taiwanese citizens were residing in the coastal economic zones of southern China. Also in this period, informal negotiations were initiated between Beijing and Taipei with the aim of establishing direct cross-strait shipping, postal, and commercial relations, relations that came to be known as the Three Links, or Santong. In the course of these unofficial negotiations, which took place first in Hong Kong and then in Singapore, Representatives of the two sides sought to hammer out a compromise agreement that would enable them to circumvent the roadblock posed by Beijing's One China principle. The Taiwanese side nominally agreed to accept Beijing's notion that there was only one China, but with the important caveat that the term One China was subject to different interpretations by the two sides. In Taipei's official interpretation, one China still referred to the Republic of China rather than the People's Republic. In the event, however, all progress toward increased cross-strait cooperation and communication came to a sudden screeching halt in the summer of 1995 when President Li Dunhui made his provocative pro-independence speech at Cornell University. As we saw in Lecture 43, this incident provoked an angry response from Beijing, which then conducted large-scale military exercises in the Taiwan Strait. The exercises included the test firing of several unarmed guided missiles, which landed within a dozen miles of the island. The mounting crisis ended only when President Clinton sent two aircraft carriers into the vicinity of the Taiwan Strait early in 1996 as a warning to Beijing. Angered by China's blatant attempt to intimidate them through coercive diplomacy, Taiwan's voters vented their anti-China feelings by defiantly electing Li Dunhui to a second four-year term in 1996. Li responded by ratcheting up his pro-independence rhetoric and by 1999, he was loudly and proudly proclaiming that Taiwan and China were two separate and distinct national states. Having failed to intimidate Taiwan's voters, Beijing's leaders now stepped up their efforts to deter Taiwan from declaring independence. On the eve of the island's 2000 presidential election, Beijing issued a harshly worded national defense white paper which threatened military action against Taiwan unless the Taiwan authorities entered into earlier negotiations for reunification. This was followed shortly by a veiled warning from Chinese Premier Zhu Rongji, who stated that 
there will be no good ending for those involved in Taiwan independence. Once again, however, the attempt to intimidate Taiwan's voters had the opposite effect. This time, it served mainly to rally support for the opposition DPP, whose presidential candidate in 2000, Chen Shui-bian, was an avowed supporter of Taiwan independence. Aided by a deep split within the Guomindang between pro-unification and pro-independence factions, the DPP won the election of 2000. And for the first time in its 55-year history, the Republic of China on Taiwan had a non-Guomindang president and a militantly pro-independence president at that. Relations between Beijing and Taipei remained deeply strained throughout Chen Shui-bian's two presidential terms. During his eight years in office, Chen pursued a calculated strategy of gradually pushing the envelope of Taiwan sovereignty and independence. A key element in this strategy was Chen's persistent effort to revise the Republic of China's constitution and to rename the Republic of China as the Republic of Taiwan. On several occasions in the early 2000s, Chun antagonized China's leaders with provocative rhetoric, and in turn, they denounced him in the harshest of terms. Meanwhile, in Washington, by 2003, President George W. Bush's foreign policy advisors had concluded that Chen Shui-bian was a loose cannon, a provocateur who, if left to his own devices, could wind up dragging the United States willy-nilly into a military conflict with China. In December of 2003, Bush put his foot down. In a nationally televised White House photo opportunity session with visiting Chinese Premier Wen Jiabao, the president stated that the United States does not support Taiwan independence, nor does it support any efforts to unilaterally alter the status quo in the Taiwan Strait. Pro-independence groups in Taiwan, including President Chun, were understandably upset by the president's remarks. China's leaders, on the other hand, were very pleased. And why wouldn't they be? for Washington had finally acknowledged the need to actively restrain Taiwan's headstrong president. Notwithstanding this newfound American determination to restrain Chen Shui-bian, Chen narrowly won re-election to a second four-year term in 2004. It came as a bit of a surprise to most observers. This time, his election was in fact aided by an unsuccessful assassination attempt against Chun and his vice president, Annette Liu. Occurring just 24 hours before the election, the botched assassination attempt created a wave of popular sympathy for the incumbent president, enabling him to pull off an extremely narrow last minute victory. Now in the interest of full disclosure, I was in Taiwan serving as an invited election monitor during the 2004 presidential election. And by sheer happenstance, I was in the vicinity of President Chun's motorcade when the assassination attempt took place. At the time of the shooting, I was 
interviewing a group of DPP politicians just about a mile away from the president's motorcade. Almost immediately, rumors began to fly that the president and vice president had both been killed. These rumors were quickly put to rest, however, when television footage revealed the president and vice president's wounds to be relatively minor. Seeking to maximize public sympathy, Chun held a photo op session with the mass media in his hospital room, where he bravely displayed his superficial abdominal wound while the TV cameras rolled. Meanwhile, at the headquarters of the opposition Guomindang, angry people were raising allegations that the assassination attempt had been a fake, a hoax, a last-minute gambit devised by the Chun camp to avoid defeat in the election. Adding to the credibility of such suspicions, Taiwanese pollsters confirmed that at the time of the shooting, the Guomindang candidate, Lian Zhan, enjoyed a lead over Chen Shui-bian of between three and four percentage points. But that lead evaporated within a few hours as a wave of last-minute sympathy for Chun enabled him to eke out the narrowest of victory. In the final vote count, just one-tenth of one percent separated Chun from Lian Zhang. Was the assassination attempt a fake, a hoax? The evidence is inconclusive. But the GMD camp remained irate, sensing that they had been robbed. In Chun Shui-bian's second term, he came under intense American pressure to tone down his pro-independence rhetoric. With the Bush administration now concentrating its attention on the war in Iraq and the global war on terror, Mr. Bush was in no mood to be dragged by China into a military showdown, to be dragged by Chun into a military showdown with China. Meanwhile, Chinese leaders sensed an opportunity to take advantage of Chun's growing difficulties by holding out an olive branch to opposition leaders, the old United Front strategy. In 2005, Beijing invited the defeated Guomindang presidential candidate, Lian Zhan, to visit mainland China. It was a major public relations coup for China as well as for the Guomindang, and the party's approval ratings began to rise sharply among Taiwan's voters. In the wake of the GMD's successful cross-strait peace, peace initiative, Chen Shui-bian's polling numbers declined sharply. Not only were the Taiwanese people growing weary of his provocative tactics, but there were also serious allegations of corruption involving members of the president's own immediate family, including his wife and son. And by the time the 2008 presidential campaign came around, Chun's approval ratings had dropped to an all-time low of less than 20%. In the March 2008 presidential election, the DPP candidate, Frank Xie, was dragged down by his association with Chen Shui-bian, much as John McCain was dragged down by his association with George W. Bush. Meanwhile, a re-energized Guomindang fielded a formidable new presidential candidate, the young, charismatic, dynamic former mayor of Taipei City, Ma Yingjiu. Ma Yingjiu campaigned on a promise to work hard to improve relations with China. 
Specifically, he pledged to resume the long-suspended cross-strait negotiations on the establishment of the three links, that is, direct postal, commercial, and shipping ties across the strait. These talks, initiated in 92, had been abruptly canceled in the wake of the 1995 missile crisis. The election itself turned out to be something of a landslide as Taiwanese voters demonstrated their weariness with Chen Shui-bian's China-baiting tactics. Ma Ying-jeou defeated Frank Xie by a decisive majority of 58% to 41%. The magnitude of Ma's victory was widely interpreted as a mandate for repairing cross-strait relations. In a welcome change of tactics, mainland China's leaders carefully refrained from trying to influence the outcome of the 2008 election. Evidently, they had finally learned a lesson from their earlier heavy-handed efforts to coerce Taiwanese voters in 1996, 2000, and 2004. In each of those earlier elections, Beijing's bullying tactics had proved counterproductive, causing Taiwan's voters to rally around the flag of pro-independence candidates. In the aftermath of the 2008 election, there were audible sighs of relief on both sides of the Taiwan Strait, not to mention in Washington, where Ma Ying-jeou's victory was greeted with barely disguised satisfaction. Although the Bush administration had maintained a facade of strict neutrality in the election, there was little doubt that the administration strongly preferred Mr. Ma. And in Beijing, China's leaders could barely contain their glee. Within just a few months of Ma Ying-jeou's election, the atmosphere of cross-strait relations began to improve markedly. By the late summer of 2008, negotiations had resumed on the three links. In December, the first ever direct commercial flights between Taiwan and China were inaugurated. By the spring of 2009, cross-strait relations were more relaxed than at any time since the early 1990s. More than 3,000 mainland Chinese visitors were now arriving in Taiwan each day, a tenfold increase over the previous year. One clear sign of the improving atmosphere was Beijing's approval of Taiwan's application to gain official observer status in the World Health Assembly. It was the first time China had not stood be between Taiwan and membership in an international organization. Although China has for now substituted the carrot of soft power for the stick of military threat, the ultimate goal of reunification remains Beijing's top priority. And if soft power fails to produce visible progress towards some form of political reintegration, hard power will remain an option. Though we cannot predict whether peace or war will ultimately prevail in the Taiwan Strait, one thing does seem clear. The state of play in cross-strait relations will be strongly affected by long-term evolutionary forces at work within China itself. Major changes are taking place in China's economy and society. In the next lecture, We'll take a closer look at these domestic changes, and we will see how they are serving to reshape China's national identity and self-image.